Most of you are aware that over the last few Sundays, we have been steadily working our way through Hebrews chapter 11. And today we come to our final study in that series, which was entitled By Faith. And we're coming to Hebrews chapter 12, reading together the first three verses. For those watching at home or whether you're at the beach this weekend or down at the lake and have joined us on live stream, welcome to you. Thank you for being with us. Or perhaps you're watching this on our television broadcast. We're grateful that you're there. And so let's begin Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. And the writer to the book of Hebrews begins with the conjunction, that linking word between chapter 11 and 12, and writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Over the next few days, most of us will enjoy the Independence Day celebrations. Over 50 million people will fly across the country this week. Many of us will enjoy cookouts, family time, fireworks, street parades, and we will enjoy celebrating our nation's birthday. And we should. And of course, in our minds, many of us will think back to previous generations, often a long way back in our history, and give thanks for some of the individual men and women who made our nation possible. And we'll give thanks to God for them and the example they provide. I would have to say that two of my favorites, I have multiples, but two of my favorites are Orville and Wilbur Wright. And over the last five, six years, I've dipped into the story of the Wright brothers multiple times. And if you haven't read David McCulloch's book on the Wright brothers, it really is extraordinarily well done. And my question is this, why was it the Wright brothers, two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, who were the first to conquer manned flight. Why them? What was different about them? What was so special that enabled them to take off into the air when for hundreds of years others have tried and it ended in failure? In 1896, one of the brothers, Orville, the younger of the two, became ill with typhoid fever. And for a total of six weeks, he lay in bed wrestling with the fever. And his brother, Wilbur, sat at the bottom of the bed, looked after him as much as he could, sought to make him comfortable, 
drank some liquids in those early days till the fever broke, and he eventually began to get a little better. And during those six weeks, for the first time, Wilbur read a book on aeronautics. And as he sat there for six weeks, he began to dream. He began to ask some tough questions. What would it take to be able to fly? What is involved? How would one go about it? And possibility after possibility after possibility was conceived and birthed in his mind. And seven years later, only seven years, the Wright brothers were credited with controlled, sustained flight of a powered, heavier-than-air aircraft on December 17, 1903. The aircraft was known as the Wright Flyers. A remarkable piece of achievement. They were determined during those seven years to make progress. They were determined that nothing would impede them. They settled, of course, in the outer banks, which had the best conditions for flying. They slept in those early days under tarpaulins, and I don't mean in a tent. I mean the mosquitoes and bugs were so bad that they physically wrapped it around their head and their bodies woke up in the morning with large insect and bug bites. And they kept on going and kept on going and kept on going and kept on going because they were determined that progress would be made. Now, this morning as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, and we read those words, therefore, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. The biblical author of Hebrews is doing what? He is painting for us a picture. You have been surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. In other words, all of the Old Testament saints that had been featured in chapter 11, and he's saying now, therefore, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That metaphor is, of course, as an athlete running. And the Christian life is often painted as one of progress, one of moving forward, one of following the call of God. But we're never asked to be stationary or static, but we're called to move forward in our faith. And here's my question this morning. How far have you come in the last six months, since early January, when we were spending our Sunday mornings in James. Are you running the race with perseverance? Or have you slowed down a little? When God first calls us through the pages of the gospel, we begin to learn and appreciate and understand 
the incredible nature of His love when we sense His hand upon us and calls us to Himself, when He grants to us a new heart and a new mind and a new soul, when He motivates us and sustains us and strengthens us and then grants to us the indwelling power of His Holy Spirit so that we can run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. He calls to us, come, follow me, keep going. Or I wonder this morning if you would rather say, Richard, in all honesty, I need a bit of a break. I have been running hard, and I've not really gotten that far and I need to catch my breath. And please forgive me if I kind of, oh, just sit down for a moment or two and just rest here to get my strength back. And I don't think for a second God would for a moment begrudge you that. But our difficulty is this, that when we sit down, The temptation is to rest and relax a little and watch others running by and to wave and smile. Keep going. You're doing well. Thank you. Well done. And then five minutes becomes ten minutes. And ten minutes becomes an hour. And an hour becomes several days. And we discover all of a sudden that we have become stationary and static and we've given up and we're no longer running the race with perseverance. In fact, we are not a participator. We are now a spectator. Now, there are moments when we are wounded and hurt that we need rest. And I mentioned a few seconds ago, he would never begrudge us that. It's in those moments He often refreshes and renews us, but when we are well again, He expects us to get up and keep going. Therefore, since you are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And let me suggest this. That in previous Sundays over late April through May and June when we have looked at Enoch and Abel and Noah and Moses and Abraham and Sarah and Samuel last Sunday and Jacob and Isaac, Rebecca, excuse me, Rahab, so many, we've been moved and motivated and inspired But please hear me, when you are encouraged, when you are inspired, when you are motivated, inspiration must move to application. It is never enough to just remain there with a warm, fuzzy feeling, thinking, I've learned so much this Sunday morning. We then need to live it out. He calls us to be men and women of integrity, transparency, honesty, humility, but also holiness and purity 
and obedience. And that's why he says inspiration is not enough. Therefore, since you are surrounded, let us now run the race with perseverance. And then he adds, let us throw off everything that so easily entangles us and the sin that hinders us. If you will allow me once again another illustration from the Wright brothers. One of the things I love to do when I'm in Washington, D.C., and it's not that often, but if I'm there, I always give myself an extra couple of hours to visit the Air and Space Museum. The Smithsonian Institutes, I am absolutely convinced, are national treasures in D.C., always worth a visit. And I usually stay in the Holiday Inn close to the Air and Space Museum. It's the cheapest hotel I can get in Washington, quite honestly. And when I go in the back door of the museum, I immediately go up the stairs. And the first thing I give thanks for is when I go through those doors is, and my Scottish blood loves this, it is free and so when I go in, I make my way up the stairs and I go to the back where the Wright Brothers' aircraft is right there. And the first thing that impresses you when you see the aircraft is certainly its size. And then as you begin to look at it in more detail, as you pause and slow down enough to examine it, you realize of this, it is made of timber. It's wooden, and it has no landing gear at all, no wheels. Skis are underneath, like skids. They weren't quite sure how to come down. And so when they hit the ground, they hit very gently, and they skid eventually to a stop. And the pilot has to lie down, lie down prostrate, right like that, and the propellers are behind them, two wooden propellers, which the Wright brothers had to cut and measure and plane and craft for themselves. They didn't cover it with varnish or wood stain. They'd no time for that. We're not interested in that. Their focus was on what? Moving forward, progressing, not to be hindered by anything else. And the lack of equipment is incredible. But all they were interested in was that nothing would hinder them. And that principle is right here. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying this. Ask yourself those serious searching, fearless questions. Father, are there areas in my life that need to change? Have I put them down to behavior patterns? Do I write them off simply as habits, personality? It's just who I am. Father, help me to see myself the way you see me, of course you love me. Of course you died for me. 
Of course you want the very best for me, but you also want me to be holy in every aspect of my life, in my behavior patterns, in my thought process, in my habits, how I interact with family and friends and those I love, in my neighborhood, in my place of work. Father, help me ask those fearless, searching questions where sin exists in my life, and I need to do something about it. Help me, please, to be rid of them and to be faithful to your call, and to run with perseverance, throwing off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles. That's what's going on here. And then notice where Hebrews takes us next. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Of all the people we have looked at in the previous chapter, never ever does the writer of Hebrews say, fix your eyes on Enoch, fix your eyes on Abel, fix your eyes on Abraham or Sarah or any of the others. But he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith who for the joy of the cross scorned its shame. Now, pause for a second and ask yourself, what on earth does that mean? Because you may be saying, Richard, I understand the joy of Easter Sunday. I understand that in those early moments of Easter Sunday morning when the disciples arrived at the tomb and they were uncertain what was happening and they were puzzled and unsure, but eventually when they realized what was taking place, oh my goodness, the joy was overwhelming, utterly transforming their sadness and grief and bereavement. I can understand that joy that Christ was risen from the dead. I get that. And why doesn't the writer to the Hebrews say, consider the joy of the resurrection? But he says, consider him who for the joy of the cross. Joy in the cross? The cross where he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross where he went through unimaginable pain. Where is the joy in that? The joy is this, that he went to the cross knowing this, that his sacrifice would bring into being at the climax of all of history past and all of eternity still to come, at that moment when he cried, it is finished, he had achieved salvation for humanity. He had accomplished what his Father had sent him to do. And the toxic, debilitating impact and power of sin held no more sway over humanity. 
Sin was dealt with. Forgiveness was now possible. Salvation was a living reality. And today he looks at you and I and says, she belongs to me. He is mine. I saved them. I didn't just make it possible, but I have saved them and brought them into a relationship with myself. That's where the joy is. That's where the satisfaction is. That is where that deep, deep cry from heaven, it is finished. That's the joy. And that's why he runs alongside us and says to us almost as if we are running a marathon together. And he's saying, you've got this. I'm with you. The water station's half a mile. You'll get your second win any moment now. Keep going. And then he'll fall back a little and let you run on and say to those of us who are sitting down, it's time. Come on. Come on. The pity party's over. Let's get up. Let's move on. Keep going. You've got this. And more importantly, he's got you. That's what's going on here in Hebrews. Consider him who endured so much suffering and scorned its shame for you. That's what's going on here. No wonder it was joyful. And you may be here saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I'm grateful for all that you've said. I understand the passage a little better. But Richard, I have two or three questions this morning. And my first question is this, don't you tell us on Sunday morning, and don't you highlight and feature the importance of living out our faith in the week ahead? Yes, absolutely. So Richard, my first question is this, how does any of this relate to the 4th of July? How does any of this connect with independence and a patriotic service? Secondly, Richard, when we have a patriotic service, are we bordering on Christian nationalism in some way? Are we attempting to wrap our faith up in a flag and worship that flag? Is that what we're doing this morning? And thirdly, Richard, I've wanted to ask you this for some time, but never really had the courage to do it, so let me ask it while I've got witnesses. Richard, why on earth is a Scotsman leading a patriotic service? <laughs> Come on, what, what is going on here? Well, let me try and answer the three questions. The first question was, what does any of this have to do with the next few days? When Christ calls us into a relationship with Himself, when we are exposed to His love and grace, and we seek His forgiveness, and commit ourselves to following Him and living out our faith, it is never, ever simply a private matter. Never. 
It's not a privatization of our faith, ever, because we're called to live out our faith, not just within these four walls, but we're called to live it out in our families. We're called to live out our faith in our neighborhoods. We're called to live out our faith in the city and in the community and also in this nation. It's never privatized. We're called to live it out in our own immediate family, but also, as I said moments ago, to make a difference to those in need in our neighborhood and in our community and in this city and in this 21st cultural setting and in this nation. There are standards and values that as Christian people we hold in high regard, honesty, transparency, accountability, but also prayer and also empathy and also making a difference. And those Christian values we seek to live out day by day by day, we're called to do that. And we're also called to see folks in our neighborhood as an extension of our own family. We're called to see the city as an extension of our own family. And we live in this nation and see the nation as part of our family. Is it a family who at times is dysfunctional? Yes, of course. Is it a family who will bicker amongst each other? Absolutely. Is it a family who will be far from perfect? Of course, because we ourselves are far from perfect. But we never wait until we are a perfect people to live out our faith. We never wait until we are a perfect people in order to serve. We never wait until we get it all right to care for someone else. We never do that. We are called to form a more perfect union. We are called to engage. We are called to participate. We are called to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. That's how we apply this passage into our own lives. Secondly, are we involved in some kind of Christian nationalism? No. We are simply living out our faith. Are we as a country and a nation, a people who always get it right? No. Are there injustices in our past and in our present day? Yes. But that doesn't mean we give up. That doesn't mean we sit down and don't care. But we do the opposite. We pray, we become involved, we seek to make a difference, and we do so intentionally to form a more perfect union. Thirdly, why is a Scotsman conducting a patriotic service? Because I'm not simply a Scotsman. I am part of a family as a U.S. citizen, and a family that's defined by these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, not endowed by the Senate or the House or a governor or a president or political leaders or civic leaders, by our Creator. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
It does not mean that I agree with ever, everything one administration does and everything another administration doesn't do. No. But I can absolutely certainly put my hand in my heart and say this. I will not give in ever to cynicism, to skepticism, and to constantly and publicly criticize our civic leaders, our political leaders, or anyone in society. Why? Am I simply naive, innocent, childlike? No. Because I know this, that Christ never treats me that way. He never treats me with cynicism. He never is skeptical of me. Although I have given him endless opportunity to do just that, and he refuses simply because he loves me, because he loves me, because he loves me. And as a recipient of his love and grace, I will not spend my life criticizing people I am called to love. I will never go out of my way to undermine them. I will never go out of my way to marginalize or minimize them. I will go out of my way to seek and to pray for and to care for and to impact in order to form a more perfect union. That's how we take this passage and apply it to us today. And so this week, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And we do so with gratitude and thankfulness and celebration this week, but also willing to roll up our sleeves, willing to impact our community, our city, our nation. For here we stand. So help me God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And we ask, O oh God, that over these next few days, you would pull us back from constantly criticizing others, treating them with skepticism, undermining them with cynicism, but enable us to roll up our sleeves to make a difference in our community, in our family. And Father, allow us, please, to begin with ourselves and allow us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.